How does an academic researcher, tech strategist, artist, and fashion entrepreneur do it all? Not sequentially, but as simultaneous careers and while living with a rare memory condition that is both a curse and a blessing. Listen up for his story and his purposeful work legacy. Welcome to the Legacy Makers at Work podcast. I am Liz Stern, and this podcast is for Gen Xers and aspiring leaders in mid-career seeking to create an intentional work legacy aligned with their personal purpose and vision while in the midst of a busy, complex life. Our listeners desire guidance to identify, create, and implement their intentional legacy at work. They want to grasp opportunities to transform organizational cultures and to succeed. They are seeking fulfillment of their purpose and meaningful contributions, impact beyond themselves. I am here with my co-host, Phyllis Weiss-Hazaro, and our guest, Nima Vesa. Thank you for joining us. Our guest for this episode, as Liz said, is Nima Vesa. He's all these things, academic researcher, tech strategist, artist, and fashion entrepreneur, plus best-selling author of Markets with Memory, the world's first data science book on the hemp and cannabis industry. Nima is one of three co-founders of the Temporal Abstraction School of Art. He came into my life recently when I purchased one of his beautiful paintings, which he came personally to deliver and install and led to a three-hour conversation. Nima's work on memory, technology, and design has been featured across the world, including academic conferences, TED Talks, and Art Basel. He's the chief data advisor for several companies and organizations focused on utilizing data science and machine learning to push the frontier of infrastructure, accountability, pricing theory, visualization, and sustainability. Fascinated by how people and technology can work together to further human well-being, economic progress, and business objectives, he uses data-driven analysis and focuses on infrastructure sustainability within healthcare, energy, consumer goods, public institutions, and financial services. And Nima holds degrees from George Washington University, Georgetown, Columbia, and MIT, and has received three patents. And I can honestly say Nima is in the running for one of the most fascinating persons I have ever met. We are thrilled to welcome you to our podcast, Nima. So let's get on with it. Liz? Nima, my first question for you is what are your core values and how have they guided and informed your journey and deep connection to your art and your work? And how would you define your work legacy? Oh, that's a great question, Liz, and how I define my work legacy. And first of all, so Phyllis, thank you for the very generous introduction. Uh, grateful to be here as well. As an engineer, you know, we joke that uh, a lot of things in life are, you know, as opposed to forward engineering, most things in life are reverse engineered. And I think that it would behoove me not to start from pointing out that a lot of a lot of what I've manifested into the success and opportunities that I've had, I've largely been a function of survival and necessity, 
right? Necessity is the mother of all invention. So a lot of what this, I think, conversation might circle around, especially with regards to my core values, is this idea of transforming and trying to kind of resonate, understand how you work best and how you resonate with yourself, and then identifying ways to be able to create beauty in the world around us. So for me, my the very short answer is, uh, in terms of my core values, is I always make my decisions operating from a point absent of fear. I always do my best to approach something from an analytical standpoint. And although this may sound cliche, I always approach things from, you know, I take the deathbed approach. As in, if looking back as a, uh, in the very, hopefully, <laughs> distant future, did I operate with integrity? And was I operating, you know, operating with integrity with myself? Was I being driven by love, curiosity, as opposed to fear? And was operating with integrity with the outside world? Like, did I make, leave the world a better place? Was I able to put a drop in the ocean of literature that helps this more sustainable world for our children? Does this, you know, or does this art piece reflect truly the heart and soul of the family that's acquiring it? So that's, that's awesome because I work with a lot of individuals. And one of the questions I always ask them to think about or, or ideas I, I ask them to think about is what is your six word memoir? What, if you died today, God forbid, what would you have left behind that you would be proud of? And how does that resonate with your values? So that's a, that's a great answer to the question, Nima. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, very much. So Nima, you, I think you told me your father moved from Iran uh, to the US when he came to finish his undergraduate degree at Arizona State University. You were born in the US. How has your family background influenced your career choices? Did it have to do with, you know, for example, why you employ only immigrants in the U.S. in the fabric and clothing business you started? No, that's a great question. I think there's two aspects of that. I think you did touch on some of the work we do with Dress Abstract, which is a sustainable clothing line where in addition to focusing on the physical capital questions about sustainability, which traditionally fall into things like environmental, you know, fast fashion, waste, et cetera, that we're trying to prevent. But I also, there's two types of capital in the world in economics. You have the physical capital, and then you have human capital, which are the skills and the people that go into making an economic system. And during my doctoral research, I uncover this idea that we always heavily focus on the physical capital side of the equation, but how about the human capital? My parents came to the United States, fled Iran during the revolution and made a home here and you know, started this very classic immigrant story. It started with nothing and uh, built up from there. And it's always been a, a strong part of my heart. But additionally, also a big part of my family is taking things from an analytical approach, right? Looking at facts, understanding you know, how do numbers work? And how can you actually manage a life and grow a life being good with numbers? And how does looking at life through the lens of math make life easier and more scalable and create opportunities, not just for yourself and your family, but for your community and those that you employ? And then lastly, I think the biggest part of the immigrant journey that is I've absorbed is the immigrant mentality, just hard work, but also you know, interestingly, I've struggled a lot with this idea of the, the immigrant mentality because in a lot of ways, it's, I think it's well-meaning 
but also I think in a lot of ways, it can also end up being a trap where a degree of, how would I put this? You know, I think some people might undersell their very unique lens and point of view uh, that they can offer to a situation, company, organization, or a team or a partnership, right? It doesn't matter if it's in your inside or outside of work. So that's how I feel the uh, immigrant journey has, how I've embraced and absorbed it via my parents and their journey. So are you saying, just to clarify, that you think that many immigrants hold back from what they're capable of? I think this is part of a greater transition. Yes, in a way, but I think this is actually part of a greater transition in corporate culture and leadership, right? So there's this new, there, there's, I mean, there's a, a few themes over the last 10, 20 years that have emerged in leadership, right? We talk a lot about empathy and we talk a lot about servant leadership. And I think that correlates with how the idea of the immigrant mentality, I think in some ways it would be healthy to evolve. And what I mean by this is it's great to have this idea of a servant mentality, right? And, you know, to always put the team first and to embrace where you fill in the opportunities. However, I think this can somehow sometimes systemically get hijacked. And I think people's empathy, and we've seen this in countless ways throughout the pandemic in and out of workplaces, news, et cetera, how we're getting bombarded with all this information where empathy can get hijacked. And I would proudly consider myself an empath, but I also, I hear that's, it's a common thing that people say often now, but I would also caution people that just to say I'm an empath is to forego the responsibility that would require us to grow. And what I mean by this is if we, if we only allow empathy to guide everything, it's really hard to blaze your own path because you're constantly being driven by the feelings that are surrounding us. So I think we're in a very interesting time where a lot of things are shifting at once, where the, the traditional immigrant mentality kind of decaying, not in a bad way, but instead of, I guess, shedding its shell uh, for a world that requires us to participate, to not just be servants, but to be servant leaders and to step up and be able to know your worth without getting distracted by all the noise that may be driving how we see ourselves within the broader scope of these of, or the organizations that we work and live in. That is really fascinating. I mean, especially in this time, that's a lot to contemplate that you just said. It's a great, a great answer. So Nima, with all the simultaneous careers that you have, what was the spark that led you to develop them or, and do you consider one of them to be your calling or at the top of your list? And how does your extraordinary memory keep them straight? And please feel free to share whatever you like or comfortable talking about regarding your memory. I appreciate that. And I, I actually, you know, I'll take this approach, this novel approach on reverse engineering this. I think to someone who doesn't have hyperthymesia, I can see how the order of operations might be how the memory enables this. But in reality, like I, it's, it's really a survival mechanism. And to be honest, it's actually the occupations that enable the memory. And I'll explain why. 
the thing is, I'm a strong believer that when people are in, not aligned with themselves or in dissonance with themselves, it, it, it manifests in a lot of many different ways. Some you know, can be hard, others can be tragic. I'm gonna, I'll take a, a deep breath on this. Let's start from the end and reverse engineer this. Okay. And I'll, I'll get into some relatively intense topics, but I think moving backwards from the end might actually be the most appropriate way of, of approaching the situation. So I've hyperthymesia, which is a brain condition that affects, uh, they've identified between 1500 cases worldwide over the last decade or so. So there aren't too many of us. And the cornerstone of it is that, that um, the ability to forget is an ability that I do not have, which sounds on its surface like a superpower, but at the same time, forgetting is truly an evolutionary advantage. You know, 99% of what you learn and absorb in terms of data in a day isn't really useful for survival. And I'll, I'll state this kind of anchor point as a positive moment of vulnerability. And the dark joke within the study, uh, so I've been a part of the study at the University of California, Irvine, for the last decade or so, they've been studying us. One of the kind of jokes about it is that, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine that I'm one in a hundred million, right? But the, the unfortunate reality is, you know, it's very overwhelming and a lot of people just end up uh, killing themselves off, which is why the sample size perhaps is lower than we might expect in the population. Mm-hmm. But my situation in terms of like feeling dissonance within myself is not unusual. There are many people out there, right? There's people who suffer from suicidal ideation. There's people who suffer from depression. And I think a large part of this, and this is coming from my own personal experience and working over many years to understand these mechanisms. uh, I think we spend most of our lives just trying to get into alignment with ourselves, right? So I'm just an extreme case of where a lot of people do end up. But if you were to take where most people's average situation is right now with just mild dissonance or mild misalignment with themselves, and then draw it to a natural extreme, which could happen through any number of you know, catalytic moments in someone's life, right? That could drive them toward it. You would be in exactly the same place where I've been working backwards from. So because I experienced the world in a very extreme way, it it would make sense that I'm just one, I'm just a very red lined version of that spectrum. So working backwards, right? To more the middle of the ground, you're like, okay, so I'm I'm not, I'm I'm not uh, totally uh, in a situation where uh, I feel very, positive, comfortable, and stable in my life. And I'm now at a point where it's okay. So if I want to stay away from that redlining where I feel, you know, inadequate and in an existential crisis, then what can I do to stay out of that side of the spectrum, right? How can I keep my RPM at a high gear, right? While not overloading the engine, right? It's kind of like before, you know, you get up to 60, 70 miles an hour, your car might be going three, 4,000 RPM, but really where it should be sitting once you're up to speed is, in the higher gear going only maybe 2000 RPM. And what I discovered is that I need to actually create this opportunity to switch gears. And I needed to know, and I, th- I feel like the problem is, one of the problems that many of us have is that we don't have the opportunity to switch gears all the time. We don't know, we have one gear or two gears, right? We have our partner and our, you know, our family, and then we also have our work. I've had to look my entire life to figure out what those are. So for example, so if I were to distill like my down to roughly six words, what I do is I consider myself a translator. Like I translate, I, I create this acronym for myself. I call them HUMOGs, Humanly Unique Moments of Genius. So I, I translate these HUMOGs into timeless artifacts, right? And I'm not even talking about my own, you know, ideas and 
potential opportunities for genius. I try to take other people and I translate them into math models or, you know, if I'm operationalizing something in a, in a, in a business or if I'm trying to help someone from creating a commissioned art piece, right? I'm translating their memory, whether it be a birth of a child, memory of their wedding day or a sunset or even just the, the vibration of a guitar chord being played. I distill that into a single point in space and time. And then I explode it as layers of paint into a real world artifact on canvas. That's what I do. And I found very different ways of doing it. One of them is through the clothing line Dress Abstract to help empower refugees that have resettled here in the United States or employing American jobs. Or through my artwork, where I translate, as I said, moments and memories and times into timeless artifacts on canvas, which I feel extremely grateful that it's received such positive international recognition. And, uh, or just, you know, working on my doctoral work in mathematics, looking at how the systems and pieces of the world fit together. They all feed into each other because if I don't have the gears to switch between them, one starts to lack, it creates blind spots. You know, there's this whole other part of me where I've had to, you know, that's, that's on a professional and mental level, right? But now I have to reconcile my professional self with my personal self. And that's also been extremely challenging, right? Because my experience as a human is very different than a normal person, right? This is the second half of that, the issue. I, the way I have to make decisions, right? So for example, if, and I've, I've realized I've accidentally, you know, really upset people in my life, people I really love, and I didn't even know why it was happening. And it took me years to kind of figure this out. But it, what it ultimately, one of the things that it came down to is that when you're hyperthymastic, right? And time has no meaning to you, my time decay constant is zero. So like a very <laughs> simple example of this is like, oh yeah, I'll just call them tomorrow, right? And then and not just like a week will pass, but like a year and a half will pass and it will feel as if I just spoke to them, right? So the, the ironic thing is, and the hardest thing about it is communicating the benefits as well as the hard parts and trying to both in the workplace and outside of it in terms of my challenges, because everyone sees this as like just a universally good thing, but you know, I could very easily upset someone if they think I was ignoring them when in reality, I just, my brain doesn't actually have the same type of decay constant of time that other people do. So learning to communicate that from a personal level has been uh, helpful in my personal relationships. And I feel bad for anyone that I've accidentally offended in that way. I feel terrible about that. And it's, it, it, that's been part of the struggle. But then also the other part of my narrative on a professional level that I've also had been challenged to communicate is convincing someone, helping them to understand that, like, and this is something that a lot of people are discovering over the pandemic is I don't work best sitting in an office in front of someone being watched or micromanaged, right? And also my work as a painter actually informs my ability to do mathematics. And for a long time, when people saw me as one dimensional, you know, they would see as a distraction. It was very weird. Sometimes I get people stalking me online, bosses stalking me online, being like, oh, I see you're a painter too. You must not be fully invested in your job. Yeah. And I was like, or, you know, this even happened in, in grad programs. I just, uh, and, um, you know, coming up with a way of explaining that it is important, that it is invaluable, and it's not separable is, has been part of my biggest challenges, creating a, a cohesive narrative for myself, not just on the professional, but also on the personal front. You know, it's so interesting because I think that most people have 
more than one aspect to their lives, but they wouldn't necessarily have the extremes that you have where you are very high functioning at a number of levels. They might have it at two levels, but no one would necessarily notice that one other area is also operating at a very high level, but it wouldn't be as obvious. Whereas I think in your situation, it's probably a little more obvious that there are all these other aspects to your narrative that all come together to create the person that you are and to help you create all the various things that you do. It's not as obvious when you have different skill sets, I guess, if you can imagine. Oh, I mean, if I understand correctly, I think there's this interesting distinction about like what is, you know, a different skill set, right? So like my skill set is I can basically take any mathematical system and model it. It could be a memory. It could be a human. It could be an industry. And because I remember everything, my mind has no biases in most of these contexts. So I'm able to see through and construct things in such a way that it not only do I account for the full data set of what's going on in the system, but I also can step beyond what my peers would normally be able to see because they are in themselves a system so I can model them. So I know that, oh, all of my peers have this common bias so I can step outside of that. I think the best action, the next closest analogy to what you're saying, Liz, in terms of this kind of weird reverse causality we misattribute is the fact that, you know, we say, you know, do what you love, right? And you're going to be best at it, right? Do what you love, do what you love. But I think that's actually reverse causality. I think what people don't understand about that is that it's, do what you have the biggest threshold of pain for is really what people should say. And it, it manifests typically as love. But when people, I think, sometimes misconstrue that, they think that love is the same thing as joy, right? And I haven't had this privilege yet of having children. I'm God willing someday soon, you know, the future here. But, you know, I think there's that really cool distinction that I see is that sometimes, like, for example, raising a child appears as I'm observing my my friends or cohort is a very good example of this, right? Like it's not like sometimes it can be, it's always an, a labor of love, right? But it's also can be sometimes I can imagine like hard, you know, sleep deprived, but also terrifying, right? There's a living thing that depends on you. And I think that's always the corollary that's kind of left out, which is that do what you love, be the best at what you do, but also realize that doing what you love doesn't mean it's going to always love you back in the same way, right? Because love by definition, I believe is unconditional that's part of the causality. And I think getting that backwards is what my struggle is finding something I am not interested in doing. Right. So I actually have to put up blinders for myself for specific (laughs) things I specifically have not never touched. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. When I mentor students and they're at a loss for what they're going to do next, I suggest that they think about the thing that they love to do when they were about seven years of age, that they would literally not stop to go to the bathroom a bomb could go off and they would never hear it because they were so engrossed in whatever that was. To start with how intent you were to discover or to participate in whatever that thing was. And that can help you start thinking about what's the thing that you should do next. Yeah. And the the flow. I mean, I think that's the flow. And Nima you know, has mentioned in the past. I want to mention one thing that I've seen evidence of his combining these interests and things that that he does. When he came to see me, he was wearing a jacket and he showed me the lining and the lining was actually one of his paintings. I mean, it was in fabric. 
So he's able to combine you know, two of those interests in a very visual way. Yeah. Yeah. It was beautiful, really beautiful. So agile thinking now more than ever is required for flexible leadership and willingness to let go of long-held norms, rules, and mindsets. And I think that's some of what you referenced a little earlier. Please tell us about obstacles of any kind that you've faced and how you approach solutions. And also how have previous relationships you've formed help you? That's oh, a great point. Actually, let me, let me help focus this. Uh, in terms of obstacles, are there any specific there's mountains of mountains of ranges of mountains of obstacles. Uh, is there any specific type or angle that I can take approach to this? You're interested in specifically. It might be regarding organizations that you've worked with, things that you've seen, things that have been difficult or somehow they didn't understand how you operate and conflicts there. Oh, certainly. I think in all honesty, the biggest transformation of the last 20 years that I'm infinitely grateful for is simultaneously been a huge roadblock, but also now a huge facilitator has just the general institution and how we view mental health and health in general. When I was growing up, farm country, middle of nowhere, Michigan, there's a lot of stigmas with regarding therapy and you know how you, what you attend, like what does that reflect on you? How does it reflect on your family? And it was, it's really kind of tragic how that's always viewed as like someone is broken as opposed to someone seeking realignment. For the first five years of my hyperthymesia, my condition didn't have a name. That, that is truly terrifying. Being afflicted with something that you doesn't have, that is in no textbook on earth, no doctor believes you, and you're alone, completely alone. That is a very unique type of terror that I would never wish upon anyone to be in a space where not a single other human on earth can empathize with you at all, or even, even have the remotest framework for how to sympathize. And that was the first five years of my hyperthymesia. And I didn't even have the opportunities to really approach from a mental health standpoint. There's just a lot of blanket solutions that weren't really effective. And that's something I've been a huge proponent of because of my experience and why I've stood up over the last five to 10 years to really bring light to that. So I would say that the biggest institution is that actually spans every organization, whether it be public or private, academic or corporate, as well as like sub-organizations, my own internal family, the external friends I deal with, the biggest institution that's provided both in like an obstacle as well as an opportunity has been that of mental health. Mm -hmm. right. And as I understand, you weren't born with this condition. Yes. Like a young adult by the time it hit you? Yes. So they don't know what triggers it in people. They're still trying to figure that out. It's usually some sort of, you know, quasi-traumatic event earlier in life. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a death in the family or maybe even something like the first day of school. So everyone's, they don't have an identified trigger yet on what actually, how it starts, but it seems to be something that's innate and then just kind of reveals itself at some point in a person's life. Yeah, that must have been quite a shock. Well, it's less of a shock. It's more of, that's the funny part, right? So once it starts, you don't feel any different because things are just accumulating. It's not mm -hmm. till years later where someone points out to you that like, oh, you know, like it's very unusual that you might remember that Nima, you know, it's a, uh, and it wasn't until that point that other people started pointing out how unusual it was that I started taking note. I'm like, oh, you don't actually remember that or see things that way. 
I'm like, no, no one does. And I'm like, wow, okay. So hmm. that, yeah, that, that would be a, a huge challenge because memory is for most of us, one of those things that becomes more fluid as time goes by. Um, <laughs> and that would really be, I, on one hand, I could say, well, that would be, could be a good thing. But for the most part, there are things that should kind of soften with memory. And it would be difficult if they just stayed in that stark, very clear reality of what you perceived or understood to be happening at that moment. Precisely. So what kinds, Nima, what kind of business decisions or just decisions in general have you made in the companies that you've worked with toward your and your company's stated mission and goals? And have they influenced your purposeful work legacy? If I were to take one main line of thought forward, I would say that I'm very inherent in operationalizing how humans in basically in creating digital twins and mathematical models of people, their ideas and their systems, you have to have a degree of empathy. You have to listen to what is going on in the underlying system. Uh, otherwise you're not getting all the data. So for me, I think the biggest thing that I've really been grateful for in terms of how organizations that I work with operate is getting them to come from a point of empathy and not only just how we approach people and, and teams, but also how we approach each other, how we approach deliverables. You know, I put on many hats. One of my favorite is when I'm sitting as like a, you know, applied mathematician, data scientist, and I'm trying to understand, you know, sitting with a sales team member, I'm trying to create a tool for them that's going to help them work more efficiently. And the problem is people have these really interesting notions, which I think are not helpful of like, what is good or bad, right? Like, Hey, I had a, you know, you're trying to, let's say you're trying to create a list of a hundred people that you want to sell things to a lead list of a hundred people. And the language I've noticed a lot of people use is this idea of like, oh, it's a good list or a bad list, right? Is it good? I'm like, okay, but what is good and what is bad? And I think that notion of good and bad is so ingrained from like an operational and executive level. We always are, we always measure things in terms of ROI. It's hard to see things in ways aside from dollars, but you can't actually innovate or grow if you do that. So for me, I'm really happy that the organizations and teams I've worked with have embraced empathy and, and not just as like a managerial, like soften, you know, people's for feel people's feelings, but this is, it's an actual mechanism for creating transparency that will then result into innovation, right? My favorite jokes is I sit down with the salesperson and ask them questions. I'm like, I need you to understand that this is more, this is not a, there's no such thing. There's no right or wrong answers here, right? There's no such thing as good or bad. This is just a therapy session, right? You talk about what you're working on, what you feel, express that as candidly as possible, because when it comes to numbers, there's no right or wrong. It's just about how we benchmark it and where we want to go, right? And just having an honest projection about what kind of resource and calendar commitment it will take. Really coming to an organization being like, I feel like a lot of people just project a lot of insecurity as well. And a lot of mm. past organizations I've worked at where they want to like try to catch someone in like an aha moment or on guard or something. I, what I feel very grateful for is that I have a very fortunate lottery ticket, right? Like, and it's been really hard to translate something that was so hard for me early in life into something that's productive and empowers me and my teammates. I've learned that I don't have to hide behind constructs of good or bad. And I look more into embracing truth and empathy. I think that, that's awesome. 
Right. I'm really into psychological safety. And it seems like you certainly embrace that in a very big way. I have to, right? I struggle, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I struggled with it myself for so many years. I, it gave me, I think, a lot more, a lot easier of time. And it gave me the tools to be able to hold space for others as well. That's great. Definitely a benefit. Yeah, it's grateful. Well, what one or two or three takeaways or tips do you want to leave listeners with? That's a great question. The, the first one I would say is, most people are multifaceted. The default is not to be a single drone that does one thing for the rest of their lives. I think the hardest part about being multifaceted is about coming up with your own narrative about how they reinforce each other. Mm. That's the first thing I would kind of emphasize from a starting point. Yep, I feel that in, in my own career and life, but that's a story for another time. Yeah, that's fair. I look forward to that as well, Phyllis. The second thing I would say is to know what the phrase know thyself means. This is something I struggle with for years, right? And I like, what does this mean, know thyself? It's such a throwaway BS phrase, right? Like, what is know thyself? What is it? How do you know if you know yourself? And I finally think I have figured out what the answer is. And that answer is basically if you can manage your feelings and you understand where your feelings are coming from, then you know yourself. And they don't, you don't let your feelings hijack you. Now, how could this be rephrased? And how many of you heard this in many different ways? Well, like it means like, you know, someone who's moved from empathy into compassion, you know, someone who's a servant leader, someone who can manage a situation because they can manage their own feelings. And I think one of the biggest things I can tell people is if you want to get out of your own way, if you have the opportunity, find a great therapist, right? And you know, I have two, right? I have one that helps me in professional and personal capacities, because the reality is society is built on trauma. Now you don't have to be a sick person, like, like with a lot of outward things to have to require a therapist, right? We actually really all do. Because the thing is the way that society, the fabric of a society is assembled and those threads are all based off of extremely archaic reptilian concepts, right? Where like, you know, we've only just reached the point where trauma is a natural part of it's the only way that humans have figured out to help get themselves adjusted into a society so even if you were raised in the best household possible right, in the best community possible and i feel i do feel very fortunate to have for the, my friends that grew up where i grew up and the community around me but you can't avoid it and it's also part of this kind of circular intergenerational lie where it's like, well, you don't need to go to therapy. What did I do wrong as a parent or as a community, right? It's like, no, no, like you didn't realize that you were also part of this cycle and educating ourselves in this kind of intergenerational way is what's the only way to break the cycle. And you can call it nirvana, you can call it meditation, Buddhism, et cetera, and how this all kind of funnels together. But getting a therapist is really important because it's the only way to really alleviate these blind spots that were put in front of us. And I think the greatest tragedy of our time is the fact that we haven't taken the very cost-effective opportunity of going to the source and basically providing universal health care to everyone in terms, even just for their brain. The brain is, you know, one of the most important organs here, right? Like if that's what drives the person and their, uh, even how society might value them, then why are we not giving everyone free therapy and healthcare in this context. And I think that's something that's going to become, it's going to be a, oh, duh moment, like in 50 years. 
I hope I hope it's sooner than that, Nima. I do too. I sincerely yeah. do. It's I, I'm really when? honestly I think well, I think it's gonna be in the next 10 to be sincere. Yeah, it looks when? like we're going in we're a recently yeah. have accelerated acceptance beyond tolerance and yeah. appreciation. Yeah. Well, then, I always I always wonder how they disconnected the head from the body so that it's not considered yeah. the it's, part of healthcare because it, it drives every single function in your well, body. It's the same reason that the war of drugs replaced people with addiction. Addiction was seen as a criminal activity as opposed to a health activity, right? It's the same type of mentality. Uh, I think it does go back to this intergenerational trauma we refuse to acknowledge and cure. Right. And like it's really tragic that we allow it to continue to happen. I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, it actually ends up becoming as such, but it's, it's the biggest thing because people who are happier and more focused and aligned with themselves are more productive, uh, stronger economic engine for the fabric of society. That's piece two. And the last thing, if I were to give a third thing is find comfort in being uncomfortable, put yourself in uncomfortable situations, right. And embrace the opportunity to to process your feelings. And if I can leave everyone with one quote here, actually, there's this woman, I think in the 70s, 60s, 70s, a biologist, brilliant woman. And she basically pointed out that the problem with humans and the reason why we, we get a lot of things wrong is that we, we believe that we are thinking creatures that feel, but in reality, we are actually feeling creatures that think. And mm. Getting that backwards is what leads to a lot of issues and embracing your feelings, allowing them to process through you. It doesn't matter what type of spiritual, emotional, physical, or agnostic process you take. You see common in all of these practices and religions, the idea of processing feelings, separating, allowing it to go through you as sensation. And I think that is the one big piece of forgiveness we forget is we expect ourselves to be these higher minded people managing feeling They're like that are allowing that are like, these feelings are separate. But the reality is, if we understood that we're actually just creatures that that feel first and think second, then we can start to prioritize the importance of understanding feelings as a requisite for processing them in a thoughtful way. That's that's awesome, Nima. That's yes. a very powerful statement. Yes, I will look I... forward to, to finding out who the, the woman is, and I can I can certainly do that. So Nima, how could these listeners reach you? I'll put my contact email. We'll have that available as well. There'll be show notes, and they always have a I'm very reachable for my 800 number as well. So I always call the office for the workshop. So thank you. Thank you, Nima. And thank you to our listeners. We hope this conversation encourages you to regularly reflect on what's important to you, what you are most passionate about, and the legacy you desire to create for both your own work and the impact you have on an organization you work for or with. We hope you'll share your thoughts on work legacy with us. We can't wait to get moving into intentional action and accelerate your work legacy. And we'll be exploring planning and action steps in our forthcoming Legacy Maker at Work Masterminds. We're really excited to move forward. Please send us questions you'd like us to ask our guests so we can continue a meaningful conversation with you. Please go to our podcast website, legacymakersatwork.com, 
where you'll find more information and the show notes with contact information for our guests. And do subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please write us a review. Thank you. And for a special treat, if you'd like to see a photo of Nima's painting, the one hanging on my wall as an example of his art, email me at pwhazaro at pdcouncil.com with your email, and I'll be happy to send you the photo and enjoy. Until next time. Thank you.